Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello guys, welcome back to another episode of Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. Now, before we kick off this week's show, let's get the boring stuff out of the way. Follow us on Twitter, at IBL Podcast. You can follow me personally as well, if you must, at AMB Hack. Also, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. To start off this week's show, we're going to be chatting with reporter Bronwyn Weatherby, who has been off on a bit of a road trip up to Scotland. Now, you might be wondering why she's bothered going to Scotland when she's a Bristol reporter. Well, she has been looking at a massive aircraft carrier that is going to be closely linked with Bristol. So she's going to tell us a little bit about that ship itself, but then also a little bit about her experience. She was on a military base. She wasn't allowed to use her phone. It's quite interesting. And then second up, we're going to speak to reporter Tristan Cork, who has been looking into quite an interesting campaign that's been taking place across Bristol called the Year of Change, which is a about improving diversity in media and in the places that matter. There's a couple of high-profile organisations involved in this campaign, including Bristol Live, as well as the Old Vic and Ujima Radio as well. So Tristan's going to be talking about his work on that and what it means to him. And then finally, on today's show, the tables are turned. Our reporter Esme will be talking to me about one of the stories that I've been working on this week because, surprisingly, I do do a bit of work, so we thought we'd look at something that I've been working on this week. Without further ado, let's jump into our first conversation with news reporter Bronwyn. Bron, this week you have been on a bit of a jolly. I have. So talk us through it. Where have you been? I was flown up to Edinburgh um, to go and see the new HMS Prince of Wales, which is a aircraft carrier being built by the Royal Navy. Um, it's the biggest ship we've ever built as a country. Um, and it's currently docked in Rosyth Dock yard in Edinburgh so I went up there I can see your eyes asking why (laughs) (laughs) no what 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 possible reason could you have as a Bristol reporter to be in Edinburgh Bron? come on apart from a free holiday well that obviously (laughs) um but more importantly there's a link to Bristol um the ship itself is being affiliated with two cities in the UK Bristol and Liverpool um and that affiliation is quite important to both the military and and the city, um, especially given given its prominence now in as as part of the armed forces. So it's going to be based in Bristol at some point, then. I don't think it'll be able to dock in Bristol. It's huge. Um, you're talking the length of pretty much the length of Clifton suspension bridge Massive, yeah. um, and it's like 66,000 tons. So it won't be, I don't think it'll be docking in, in Bristol. Um, I hope that isn't incorrect, but it's crew and members of the Royal Navy will be doing a lot of activity in Bristol. So that could be everything from working with schools, doing STEM programs, working with cadets, working with sports teams, and generally taking a more active role in the city. Because basically the the thinking behind these kind of affiliations 
ships like this are usually linked to seafaring cities in in the UK. And the reason for that is the RAF and the army, they have a very big presence in certain parts of the UK because they're based there. Whereas the Royal Navy, although it has bases in the UK, are mainly obviously doing their job out at sea. Um, so they're not really seen as much by the British public as the other two corners of the armed forces are. So the point of linking it with cities is that they can feel a part of the UK and the people that they're representing abroad and, and whilst on duty. And people can feel a part of the Royal Navy as well and feel that connection to the men and women that serve for us as part of the Royal Navy. So you set off from Bristol. Was it Bristol Airport that you flew from then? I did. I flew from Bristol Airport. And how did the trip come about? How were you approached to to get the chance to go? As usual, these things come about, uh, you know, of a of an email from from an editor, sort of saying, "Who's up for doing this?" And at the time, I think it said, "You know, you'd be going up to see the HMS Prince of Wales in Rosyth Dockyard in Edinburgh." Not one to pass up a trip. <laughs> of any kind straight in there with yeah reply. I was um I was straight in there I think a couple of us put our names in the hat for it and I was lucky enough to so it's a hotly contested trip then by the signs yeah of that, you were lucky. and I was I was lucky enough but you know it was it was a, a day trip I went up and back on the same day but it was a very fun you know it's like a whirlwind you know because also as much as it's exciting and yeah you you do get into journalism to do lots of different things it's the variety of life that we enjoy isn't it also there's you know it's nerve-wracking you know I was going up there as a sort of one-man band armed with a DSLR camera to do the interviews to take the pictures to take the video which is all important now on our online platform and there's no going back uh you know there's no going back to a highly organised uh, trip to the MOD base in Rosyth docks and up to Edinburgh, there, w- there wouldn't be a return visit. So I had to make sure I got everything on that one trip. So, yeah, it can be quite nerve-wracking sometimes. Was it quite intense going on to a military base then as well? I imagine the security was pretty tight. And did you have to hand in your phones or anything like that? What were the rules? So it didn't seem that tight as I pulled in in the taxi. Uh, but there are there was a was a guard leading into the actual site. The thing that will stick with me more was obviously it's a it's a construction site at the moment uh, and a huge construction site at that, uh, with lots of moving parts and lots of people. So I had to wear lots and lots of health and safety and PPE gear. So as soon as I went in, I had to watch a health and safety video put on for me by Babcock, which is is one of the construction. Contractors. Contractors. <laughs> and then I had to, I was given lots of PPE gear. So I was given a hat and goggles and gloves and high vis, um, which was quite difficult when you're imagining. I had to take quite a lot of pictures. It was quite comic at times because the flash of the DSLR camera was coming up and the hit in my helmet. <laughs> so it wasn't working properly. And, um, but yeah, I got to meet some great people some lieutenants and officers and captains in the Royal Navy who's kind of uh, gave me a presentation about, you know, what the ship is. Because I think until you read about it, you don't realise what a mammoth undertaking um, building a ship like this is. You know, it's like creating a small town within a boat. You know, the power it takes to um, power up this, this ship is the power it takes to 
um, power Swindon. Mm, it's a massive ship. Yeah. So it's a massive ship. And hundreds of people on board as well. Yeah. Hundreds of crew members. Yeah. And, and you know, you're talking 36 fighter jets as well as helicopters and people living on this ship for up to nine months at a time. So you can only imagine what goes into, what has to get packed into. You know, it's a large ship, but even so, you know, as I was walking through it, you know, it's quite small rooms, it's quite compact. Every space is taking up with a with something. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing what goes into it. And then I got a tour of the ship, which was, you know, obviously the highlight of the trip. It was amazing. Were you, you were banned from using your phone, is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so... Um, to go up, we had to say state what we were taking with us to take pictures and, and video. And these days, as reporters, we generally just take our iPhones. The camera on an iPhone is good enough now that it produces pictures that's good enough for the paper and online. Generally speaking, we'll try to get our own photographers to places because they're photographers, so they'll get better pictures than us. We're not, you know, we're not trained as photographers. But if we go by ourselves anywhere, it'll be with our iPhone. I'd said that to them and it was absolutely not. <laughs> Did they explain why? No. Um, I explained why I, you know, I wanted to take my iPhone camera and that we use it. But it was just, it's just a policy. I think it's a bad policy that you can't take your camera, your camera phone. I think when you think about it, there are lots of sensitive things going on and you could live broadcast can you i suppose you could, yeah. yeah you could do that or you could send a picture really quickly before they've asked you to delete, to delete it you know there was some things that i was asked to make sure weren't included in the pictures i took and i guess if i had my phone on me then i could take a picture and quickly send it or something i think that's the reason but i wasn't actually told so you know that sounds like a reporter's absolute nightmare being mm. told that you're not allowed to use your phone. I would probably be freaking out. You're kind of reaching for your phone every yeah. time it's trying to use it. Well, exactly. Especially because I'm not, um, I've never used a DSLR camera. I've never used a camera like you that. You had to borrow all. it, didn't you? So I had to borrow it from um, Matt, who's our social media. What is Matt's title? Social, <laughs> social media. media Sorry, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> he's also the producer of this podcast. Yes, yeah, so so social media. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> our social media editor. And he gave me a crash course on using the DSLR. But it was really nerve wracking, you know, because not only am I not used to using a camera like that, but I'm using a camera like that to take a picture of this huge ship from which I couldn't get a perspective. I didn't feel like I could get like a proper perspective of how massive it was because you stand at either end, you can't see the other end, you know, and and things like that. So, um, and like you said, you only get one go as well. You've flown to the other end of the country, you can't just sort of pop back for a quick one. Exactly. Can you? But, you know, these are challenges that, we face as reporters from time to time and you've just got to do your best and and think about what will look okay and getting just like those core pictures that will work well in the paper and work well online. Is that a highlight of your career so far then would you say? I've had you know I've only been working since June and I think I've had lots of really great experiences. There's always different kinds you know sometimes you're it's a highlight because you're really proud of something that you've produced. Maybe you're more proud of the writing on something or maybe you're proud of um, the actual story, whether you broke it first or the amount of investigation that went into it. But also the things that take you on adventures, yeah, they're definitely highlights. And and this was this was definitely a highlight of my, my career. 
Yeah. The way journalism works these days is that you can be a bit desk bang, can't you? It's the same everywhere mm. that I've worked where because of social media and because of the access we have mm. to the world now just from behind our computer screens, that there's less reason to get out and about in the world, I suppose. So it's quite special yeah. when something like that comes up where you have to go and you have to go a long way, you know, and you have to be there. Like yeah. you said, you have to get involved with the cameras. You have to really be there in your high vis and you feel, really feel like you're in the thick of it. So it's a nice, it's a nice change, isn't it? Not only is it fun and what I think most of us got into the career for, there's nothing like building up uh, contacts and relationships with people face to face. We talk a lot on the phone to people, don't we? But when you get to meet people face to face, you know, you'll remember them, they'll remember you. Um, you'll just have a better connection. And whether the next time you speak to them is about a story or not, it doesn't really matter. But keeping those contacts is really important. And especially with such an important organization like the Royal Navy, it's good to have those contacts, especially if a ship like that is going to be affiliated with the city for the next 50 years, which it's going to. That is definitely a relationship to build upon because we can then bring the new whatever happens with it will be at the forefront of bringing that news to to Bristol so there's a fun side but there's also a serious side and I think you know we still value that as an industry but you're right we we do often get desk bound only because we're producing quite a lot of stories we can do things online we can do things over the phone and if that's more time efficient that's how that's how we'll do them generally speaking do you find that you write a bit better when you've been there as well i always find that if i've been out in the world and i've seen what it is that i'm writing about i've seen the place i've seen the yeah. thing that i'm writing about i find that when i sit back down i've got so much more to say about it than if you've just seen pictures or spoken to someone over the phone yeah definitely i mean we'll tend to go places more for feature stories these days won't we news stories tend to not have that much emotion attached to the way you're writing them for good reason because it's a news story and it's like a factual bulletin basically of what's happened but something like this although it contains facts it's a feature and it's a feature about something that will be quite an emotional subject for people in the armed forces people who support the armed forces and for many other reasons people <clears throat> in Bristol who have opinions on it's been affiliated with the city so yeah w once you've been there you know I'm not that up to date on the military's movements and what they're doing the first time I really read about this ship was when I got assigned to it but the more I was reading about it the more fascinated I was and I've got friends who work in the MOD in Bristol of course the MOD has got you know a huge base in Bristol uh, particularly in Filton and um, as soon as I told her, she was so excited. She was like, we try and get trips up to these ships all the time. You know, I've told my office and they're all really jealous that you're going. And, and then I think it comes home to you just how big an impact things like the building of this ship have. It's been produced with over 90% UK manufacturers and it's supplied thousands of jobs and untold amounts of money to the economy. I don't even know if they can do that calculation just because of the contractors and subcontractors that have been involved in it. It's definitely cost a lot of money as well. But when you think about the impact that this one ship that's docked in a dockyard in Edinburgh has had on so many places in the UK, engineering companies particularly, you know, it's it's amazing to think of. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bron. And if Thank you get you. picked for the next press trip, then we know that you've rigged it somehow. <laughs> Cheers, Bron. Talk to you soon.
Great stuff there from Bronwyn. Thank you very much to her. Now let's jump straight into our next conversation, which is a bit more serious, but we're going to be talking about diversity in the media and a campaign that's taken place across Bristol and involves Bristol Alive. So let's talk to Tristan Cork about that now. I'm Tristan Cork and I'm a senior reporter at the Bristol Post slash Bristol Live. Everyone still makes that mistake. (laughs) I think I've done it a couple of times. So today we're going to be talking about quite a serious topic that the Post and Bristol Live are involved in. And that's a year for change, which is kind of a campaign to diversify the media in Bristol, basically. Is that fair? Um, I think it's a lot wider than that. It's not just the media. Um, I think it's on the back of the Runnymede report. The, the aim of Year of Change is to do something which will mean that if there was another Runnymede report in 10 years' time, it would not find the same findings that it found last year. For those who aren't aware, the Runnymede report was a real in-depth look at education and job prospects in Bristol for the different uh, on the basis of someone's ethnic background and it found that BAME children in uh, black children and some Asian children did not do as well at school as the average and the job prospects were also not as good in terms of you know employment and education and training and it found great disparity and inequality and actually it found of all the major cities Bristol is the worst most segregated, most unequal city, which kind of was shocking to a lot of people who might have thought, oh, it's a wonderful multicultural hodgepodge of where everyone gets along and it's all great. No, and so that's why this report came out. And now the year of change is looking at what needs to happen so this can be made better. In the year of change we have, so it's sort of being led by the Bristol Old Vic, and Ujima Radio and uh, Bristol Post and also the BBC are involved too. What happened last night was, so this was Wednesday night this week, at City Academy there was a, a kind of the first of one of, of what's going to be four city conversations and that involved just inviting everybody to come along and talk these issues through. Why is it that Bristol is like this? What needs to happen? What can we do? So that's what happened last night. The first one took place. I think it probably could have gone on a lot longer than it did. Um, there were lots of people who wanted to talk at the end, who wanted to say something. But the, yeah, that's what happened last night. So you've been sort of spearheading Bristol Live's coverage of mm. the Year of Change and writing mostly about what we're doing, I suppose. Yeah. How have you found it so far writing about it? So it's, it's, it's quite a hard thing to write about because it can be very controversial. Also, the Runnymede report is very stark in terms of statistics. It doesn't offer any solutions or context. And the way that the meeting was last night, I was live blogging it. So I was trying to report it as it happened for the people who weren't there so they could follow what was going on. That was very difficult. It was. It felt like I was in goal and about five different strikers were shooting at the same time because people were coming out with amazingly erudite and eloquent and passionate statements and speeches for a, a minute or two. Suddenly there'll be a next one and the yeah. next one. And it's very hard to kind of, as I say, all the balls are being fired at you at the same time. And you can only sort of save one or two. And when, by, by save, I mean write down 
and getting and publish, into, and yeah. publish and add a picture in and stuff. And the logistics of doing a live blog are quite difficult in those circumstances. Live blogs are always really good when when you've got updates to put in, put in every five minutes, mm. like a football match or a council meeting. Often people drone on and on, and it's not interesting. So you can just kind of sort stuff out. But when but last night it was very fast. So that was a challenge. It's also a challenge to kind of capture what people say into sort of two or three sentences because they are often talking about stuff that is very complicated. It's a real shame to kind of have to paraphrase what they're saying. So that was very difficult. So today I'm writing a piece, sort of a more traditional report about what happened last night. One of the things I've been trying to do is to encourage other people to write um, in the community, people in the community, people right across Bristol. And I would love to have more voices from across Bristol taking the opportunity to write in the paper, taking the opportunity to write on the website. We've had a few already. It would be great to get more. It's an open door. There are lots of people who were kind of saying, and this is very true, that the media itself is not representative of the city as a whole and that is very true and it would be great to give the space to people from different communities and people from right across the city to come in and just just write just say what they think say what they think needs to happen and to say what they what they want to see from the year of change because it's the danger is of course that it ends up being a talking shop that is just an echo chamber what you end up with is that the Bristol Old Vic, us and the BBC just look like we're listening and actually nothing happens. But so, actually, in reality, we do want something to come of this year of change, oh God, basically. Yeah. yeah, but there'd be absolutely no point doing it. So last night, that was a very key point that lots of people made. And the frustration with it was that every other person seem to say, we've had these conversations before. We've talked about this for years. What we want to see is action. What are we going to do? What can we do? What can you do? What can people do to affect the change? And the frustration with the meeting was that it ended without any kind of action plan. Um, and I think, you know, being kind to the people who were organising it, it was the first one. So maybe it's a lesson to be learned from going into the next ones that it needs people to kind of take all the things that are coming at them and fashion it into an action plan. If I was going to be the person to do that, I would have said that from last night's meeting, there were two main points that people kept coming back to. One was about education, how the city's schools do not teach the young people of the city about all the different cultures and the history of things like the slave trade and Colston and all that, that kind of stuff that's going on there. Um, they don't teach that. So you end up with segregation in the city itself. And also the schools themselves are segregated. So you have a lot of, uh, they're, they're not as mixed in terms of children from different ethnic backgrounds as they could be. Um, and that's to do with who runs the schools is to do with admission policies, and that needs to change. And then the second action point, I think that probably should have been written down by someone, was that the people at the very top of Bristol's economy, society, 
establishment are the ones who have to affect the change. There are people underneath that strata of society who are doing stuff. Perhaps the most um, impassioned speech was by um, Clayton, who is the guy who does uh, Street to Boardroom. And it's like a management business training scheme for young men and women off the streets to run their own businesses and do, and he does amazing stuff. And he was saying when he goes to London and anywhere else in the world, he's kind of been fated all over the world, goes to London and he gets amazing backing, financial support. And, but no one in Bristol, the people in Bristol who have the money aren't supporting him. So it needs some kind of radical change at the top of the the system, the, the pyramid or the, you know, the tree or whatever metaphor you want to use to actually turn around and go, right, okay, we need to change. If we're going to do this, we've got to do it properly. Otherwise, it's just going to be a, a, another talking shop. So you've been, yeah, as I say, you've been spearheading the coverage on this for us. It's obviously seems to be a massively important issue and Bristol does seem to struggle to come to terms with its own existence, basically come to terms mm. with its own makeup, its own past, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on the year of change yourself and how necessary do you think it is? Uh, I think it's, I think it's really necessary. I, I think that there is a danger that people get cynical about it and I can completely see why that would be the case. Last night there was a lot of people who were there. It was really well attended and there's a lot of people who are there who are the people who you normally see. And actually, what would be really great, and it's great that they're there and we need them because they're the doers. But we also need as many people to come along. And the next one is going to be in Withywood next month, which is the heart of white working class South Bristol. It would be really interesting to see what people there think of this whole issue. Because the point is, while kids from BME ethnic backgrounds are not doing as well as the average at school or not getting the prospects. They don't have the, the job prospects or the, 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 um, they don't make the step up as much as they, uh, as much as the average. That's also true for white working class South Bristol. It is absolutely amazing when you stop and think Bristol is a city with two huge universities, including one, which is in the top 100 universities in the world and yet the city also contains a parliamentary constituency which has the lowest rate of 18 year olds going to university in Britain. Now that is to me a scandal and that's South Bristol. If we are going to be serious about a year of change it has to involve everybody. It's not just going to be about that kind of BME discrimination against them it's not going to be just them it's going to be everyone who has to step forward because everyone everyone stepping forward will help everyone else step forward and i really hope that people in south bristol get on board with it as well and that it really does kind of become a movement you know to put pressure on the people who are at the top of this city to go actually my god we do need to do something because the, the people in the city are have, have twigged. They've realised that things aren't right. Thank you very much, Tristan, for talking us through it. Cool. Okay, cheers. And thank you very much to Tristan for talking us through that. It's really interesting stuff. Excited to see what happens with that campaign for the rest of the year. 
Now, change attack again. Let's hand over the reins, reluctantly on my part, to reporter Esme Ashcroft, who is going to be taking control of the podcast and interviewing me about a court case that I attended last week. Should I introduce myself? Yeah, go on. Yeah, I should probably say. You probably should, yeah. Hello, my name's Esme Ashcroft. I have switched places with Alex Ballinger and the interviewer has become the interviewee. I'm really nervous already. (laughs) I'm actually quite scared. I don't know how to do it from this side of the table. Do not be worried. Right, so Alex, explain to me a little bit about the story which you're presenting today. So the gist of it is basically I was in court on Friday for a GP surgery practice manager who had stolen at least £50,000 of NHS money by siphoning it out of the GP surgery where she worked, which is a pretty horrific set of circumstances, basically. A public servant working in the health industry has been paying herself a massive, massive amount of money that has basically put the GP surgery into difficulty. She was in court on Friday. She was sentenced for what she did. And yeah, I was there to cover it. And so I believe there's also another layer to it as well, isn't there? Because she was campaigning against NHS cuts. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I sat through the court hearing and during that hearing, they spoke, the barristers uh, used some evidence that was from a senior partner at the practice. It was from a Dr. Darville. He's written a business impact statement. So what he'd done was basically listed exactly what the impact on the GP surgery was by her crimes, by her thefts. So basically in this business impact statement that was read out at the court, the Dr. Darville pointed out that she had been campaigning against NHS cuts during her time working at this doctor's surgery because the surgery, along with all other NHS institutions, was undergoing massive funding cuts um, sent down by central government. And she was opposed to that, but was not opposed to handing herself quite a lot of the money for the surgery herself. So how did she actually do it? How did she manage to go under the radar and take so much money under such a long period of time? So as practice manager, she was responsible for the accounts of the surgery. She was responsible with payroll, things like that. She would send out the wages and... To start off with, she had just basically made unauthorised payments when she was sending out payroll. I guess she would have just added some money to her own. She would have just sent money to to her own bank account. And that was how this was discovered uh, by the practice manager that took over from her was she went to do the accounts uh, in the summer and found that there was a massive amount of money missing. When she asked the bank, she found that the previous uh, manager, Patricia Mayer, had sent herself a lot of money. But then on top of that, that was one of the ways that she did it. But then also there were unauthorised overtime payments. So she paid herself for dozens and dozens of hours that she'd never actually worked as well. So she just sent that money straight from the accounts of the GP surgery to her own bank account. And you were at the court case. What was she like in the dock? How, how did she come across? She didn't react much at all, interestingly enough. Uh, there was mention of sort of court cases and ex-partners when they were given the mitigation. She really didn't respond at all. She sat there looking very demure, just kind of staring down basically the entire time, didn't react at all. The new practice manager was there and she sort of cast an eye across, I think, a couple of times and they're extremely frustrated, the staff there as well. So their response was quite interesting to see. The current practice manager, did she read out an impact statement? She didn't, no. Um, It was... Strangely enough, it was just the barrister for the prosecution for the CPS who read out the business impact statement. But I've actually just got off the phone just before we started recording this 
to the practice manager who was currently working there and she was telling me how devastated all the staff are that someone that worked with them closely would be capable of doing this. Yeah. And she has sent over the full business impact statement, which really sets out the details. So I'm going to be doing a follow-up story now about really what the impact has been. But the phrases used include, there's a workload crisis based on the amount of money that she stole. There have been threatened with insolvency. There's a risk of insolvency based on, because she stole such a huge amount of money. There's also been staffing problems in that they've had to suspend a job. There is a, a practice pharmacist that they have had to suspend the role of because they can't afford to pay them, which is then stress, put the stress of that job onto the other staff as well. So this one woman has just caused absolute chaos at the surgery, basically. And so just to state, it is £50,000, which she took over a period of how many years? So it's 2011 until about 2016 she worked there. Um, but the actual figure is disputed, interestingly enough. So she has admitted to around about £50,000, a little bit more than £50,000. But the Crown Prosecution Service have argued that well, they figured out there's about 63 around that area, more than 60 grand, basically. So there is a bit of dispute over how much was taken, but that didn't make any difference to the sentencing in the end, interestingly enough. Whether it was 50 grand, whether it was 60 grand, the judge said, I would give exactly the same sentence, regardless of which, yeah. And of course, there is no excuse for taking money from the NHS or from anyone at all. But was there any suggestion as to what she was spending that money on? She lived a materialistic lifestyle, interestingly, according to the judge. There was no sort of specifics they went into with this one, but it was in order to give her daughter a better life is the argument that was made. So in mitigation, the defence barrister tries to basically set out how this possibly could have happened and tries to limit the prison sentence to something that they see as fair, basically. So they give circumstances around how the crime happened. And there was a court case that involved the practice manager and her daughter that happened around the time that she started there. And that was quite, had quite a serious impact. There was a breach of trust that was, that was mentioned in court. No specifics were given on what this court case was in, it involved, but it had quite a big impact on Patricia Mayo herself and her daughter. And the argument was that Mayo did this in order to provide a nicer life for her daughter, really, which, I mean, value judgments, I'll leave that up to you, whether you think that it's justified or not, but that's what the defence argued, yeah. Of course, and so just to confirm, she got twelve month a 12-month prison sentence. 12-month so. prison sentence, yeah, which I wasn't sure whether she would be jailed or not, because with financial crimes, it can go either way. You know, sometimes you're given a suspended sentence and are allowed to walk free from court, but she has previous, basically, she has previous form where she had taken money from a county council when she was working at a day centre uh, and had spent that on things like spa treatments and things like that. Had again spent it on materialistic things. So taking that into account, it was quite a while ago, that was around the year 2000 or so, that previous offence. But taking that into account, the judge decided that she needed a jail sentence. And Alex, if I can ask, how, how do you feel about reporting court cases? Is, do you find it troubling? Do you find it interesting? I think it is strangely one of the most interesting parts of the job, I would argue. I think that quite a lot of reporters are quite are quite keen on it because you go you go into the courtroom, you sit in the press bench and you are given all of the details that you could want to know about a story. You know, you're given the background, you're even given more information that you don't use and you really get to know the ins and outs of this case. And also I feel like there is a really strong public interest in reporting what happens behind closed doors. I think some people see court, when we get a court, they see it as us looking for sensationalist headlines. But there, there really is a serious side to it, which is that justice needs to happen 
in the public in order for people to have faith in the justice system. If a crime happens to you, you need to know that it will be taken seriously and that the person that commits that crime will be punished as appropriate. And the only way that can happen is if the public are told about the punishments that happen in court. And that is our job, I think. And we're obviously really lucky that we have a regular court reporter who is there day in, day out, Jeff Bennett, who we should speak to on the podcast at some point. He's off on holiday at the moment. That's why I was stepping in for him on Friday to cover this case. But I think it's really important that we cover court cases. And I, it's one of the things I like to think I thrive at as well. Brilliant. Well, I think that's just about all from me. We will be swapping roles again next week. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ez. You were brilliant. Thanks. Thank you very much to Ez for stepping in and hosting the host on the podcast this week. That was really great. So let's bring the podcast to an end. Before we leave you, please don't forget to subscribe, download, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, if you want to join in the conversation, you can get us on Twitter at IBL Podcast or speak to me personally at AMB Hack. And if you want to follow the work of any of the reporters that are on this week's show, we're going to include links to their Twitter accounts in the show notes. So until next week, goodbye. (laughs) 